And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning. Welcome to The Real Investment Show. Lots of stuff to get into this morning uh, to talk about everything from option trading to uh, the upcoming uh, shutdown right around the corner again. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into all that this morning. Um, one of the kind of the interesting things lately in the markets, and we'll talk some more about this this morning, is really just this kind of very dull environment. It's been 95 days so far since the market has had a 1.5% correction. So again, that's just, you know, it's, it's a fairly long stretch. It's one of the longer stretches, particularly in recent history, without having a 1.5% decline. But the market's just been that. It's been very kind of really boring as of late. There's not been a lot a lot going on really driving the market. We just kind of linger from one kind of meeting to the next. Of course, today, the big Apple event, as we talked about yesterday, where Apple will reveal their, their new iPhones that will be just shy of a new car payment um, for, <laughs> for the new phone. Uh, of course, also new watches and, and new iPods. Of course, all eyes will be really kind of focused on Apple today during that announcement to see if there's anything really kind of new. I mean, you know, honestly, you know, do you remember the days where people used to literally stand out in front of the Apple stores for like days waiting to get the first, you know, the, the next iPhone? And, you know, all that hype and all that, that that occurred back then, you know, hasn't really been the case as of like people kind of go, yeah, yeah, new phone. Um, you know, I'll get it when I get it. The reason is, is that there's not a lot of new innovations yet. It may have a new camera, it may have a different case, but as far as the new innovations, right, we haven't seen a really new innovation in really cell phones in particular, mobile phones. Uh, they've now just become mobile gaming units and, and, and mobile uh, cameras more than anything else. <laughs> you know, I, I yell at my kids all the time. I was like, you have a phone, call me. And, you know, they just... It just that doesn't get there. We get text, get lots of text. I have a whole show based on text from my kids, but you know, that's just kind of what it's, it's become into, right? So there's not been any really big stretches in what's next, you know, for phones and smartphones and you know these kind of mobile media devices, etc. So again, it, I don't expect anything ground shocking today from Apple. It's always a possibility, but normally we'd have leaks by now of, of something innovative that was coming out. And again, probably won't see that. We'll probably just see, you know, uh, minor upgrades and new features uh, to the existing phone, a higher price. And, you know, people will go, okay, yeah, it'll be pretty much a yawn event more than anything else. Um, outside of that, of course, tomorrow is inflation day. That's where we get the CPI report. Again, lots, you know, kind of all eyes on that CPI report because of the recent uptick in oil prices, expecting that could actually come in a little bit hotter than expected tomorrow. I don't think it changes anything with the Fed's next meeting. The Federal Reserve already knows energy prices are up. And there's about a three-month lag in energy, so we may see inflation kind of close, closer to in line than not, but we'll, we'll see what happens. But regardless, the Fed is going to strip out food and energy costs anyway in their analysis for next week. So I don't think the CPI report uh, next uh, tomorrow is really going to make any difference uh, to the Federal Reserve meeting 
next week. Yes, they keep saying they're monitoring all the internal, you know, incoming data in terms of economic strength and inflation and the labor markets and all this. But we are seeing weakness in the labor markets starting to increase. We're starting to see some definite signs of weakening in the labor market. Uh, that's that's working in the Fed's advantage of them saying, hey, I think we've done enough in terms of hiking rates. Yes, oil prices are up, but housing costs and, and particularly the homeowner's equivalent rent component, which runs a fairly big lag, is coming down. So the things that are driving kind of the big, broad core inflation index are beginning to show signs of weakness. So again, the Fed's probably going to sit back and go, you know, we're good for right now. We're going to keep monitoring the data. But again, we'll get that report tomorrow. And of course, that will feed into next week's meeting. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, option traders continue to really just pile into these very short dated options. This what we call zero DTE. These are the zero days to expiration options. And, and pretty much just gambling uh, in terms of the market in general. And, uh, you know, this isn't surprising. There is, and as I said, you know, we've had gone 95 days now without a, a, a really significant 1.5% correction in the S&P. And there's just basically no volatility, right? So there's no real concern here in terms of taking on risk. So as consumers, as, as, as investors continue to take on more and more risk using these very, very, uh, short dated options, there doesn't seem to be a lot of risk. Again, you're not getting a big move in one direction or the other. So the risk of you know failure becomes a little bit more compressed here. But again, we're not seeing any real reflection of that either in the volatility index itself or actually in the market. The market just kind of drifting here over the last, you know, even despite the fact that we did have this uh, kind of 5% correction. Uh, in the beginning of August, which did lead to a small uptick in volatility, that now has seemingly just calmed back down. And even during that correction, it was a very mild correction. The sell-off was very mild. Again, we didn't have any 1.5% or 2% down days in the market. It was just kind of a, a slow, orderly grind lower, working off some of that previously overbought condition. And, and volatility remains here at, at very, very low levels. In fact, you know, we haven't seen levels this low on volatility since we get back to really uh, September of last year, almost a year ago. And of course, you know, then we got into, uh, you know, a bit of volatility spikes, you know, picking up around, um, you know, the, the banking crisis earlier this year. But again, really nothing here to suggest that the market is, you know, on the brink of anything. But again, you know, ultra low volatility is important here because ultra low volatility eventually leads to higher volatility. And this is just a, you know, if we take a long term look at at, at the volatility index itself, we can see that there are periods where you get big spikes in volatility. And those previous big spikes in volatility, of course, are where something ultimately broke in the markets and always come from very low levels of volatility. So as we always say here, you know, low levels of volatility will eventually beget high levels of volatility. So it is typically a warning sign. Yes, right now everything is fine in the markets. You're able to take on risk without a whole lot of worry. But again, that in and of itself, from a contrarian point of view, is a reason to worry here a bit because, again, very low levels of volatility will eventually revert to higher levels of volatility that will equate to a sell-off in the markets, likely more than what we just saw in the month of August. So at least be aware of that. Young investors that are taking on a lot of risk here with the zero days operation, uh, expiration options, you know, will ultimately resolve into losing a lot of money because this is what typically happens. When you get this reversal 
in volatility. Uh, that's where a lot of money gets lost very quickly because, again, most of these options that are being bought are on the bullish side of the ledger. They're buying call options on the bet of a price movement over the next 24 hours in a positive direction. So again, you know, if you're on the wrong side of that trade when something breaks, you typically lose a lot of money very quickly. And we see this happen repeatedly in past. But again, just you know, keeping a watch on volatility here is something to pay really close attention to because again, once you have very compressed levels of volatility, that is kind of your key warning sign for a period of higher volatility levels and market declines. So again, just kind of keep a watch on that. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back from the break, we'll pick up with what's coming up next. Yep, right around the corner, government shutdown. What does that mean? And of course, what does that mean for the markets? As we always talk about here, you know, we always have these events coming out of the government, whether it's a government shutdown or some other type of event, you know, a debt ceiling issue. What does that mean to the markets? Lots of headlines right now talking about, oh my gosh, government shutdowns coming up. Pay attention to your portfolio. You really need to. We'll talk about that coming up right after the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So yeah, it's that time of the year again. If you're not familiar with how government works, um, that may be a problem. Um, <laughs> but the fiscal year um, is now ending for the government. And so it is time now to figure out the funding for next year. And again, this is why we go through all these different, you know, kind of maturations of, of you know, budgets and bills and these type of things. And you know, as we've talked about here on the show before, we haven't passed a budget since President Obama took office. Uh, the last budget that we had was under George Bush. And since then, we have not had a budget that we've operated under, and we've, we've fallen into this very lackadaisical type of management of, of government of these what we call continuing resolutions. Now, let me, you know, let me just kind of go back in history here real quick because... You know, this is important. Prior to World War I, the government had to pass a bill for every single spending item. You want to build a bridge in Connecticut? Cool. You have to pass it. Congress had to pass a bill to appropriate the funding for the building of that bridge. If you wanted to then build a manufacturing plant in Washington, D.C., whatever, you had to pass a bill for that. So whatever you wanted to do, build a road, build a bridge, whatever you wanted to spend money on, a single bill had to be passed for that item of spending. Well, when the war is coming along, everybody's like going, man, it's too much at one time. And so they temporarily repealed the law that said basically one bill per, per item 
and moved into these bulk spending packages because there was so much to have to do at one time. They had to get the spending done and approved quickly so they could fund the war. Well, the problem was is that we never went back from that. That was a temporary measure that became permanent, as, as such is the case in Washington, is that once we figure out an easier way to do something, then we just never go back to the hard way, even though the hard way requires a bit more work, right? But you get better governance because you're saying, well, do we really need to do spend money on this, right? And you have a debate on it, and you have your you know, opposing views on whether it's a good spend or not, and you either get the bill passed or not. But now we're into these bills today, that are 2,000 pages that nobody reads, and we just pass these kind of blanket spending bills, and we don't even have a budget, right? So now we've even forgone having a budget to work around, and we just pass these continuing resolutions. Here's the problem with the continuing resolutions, as we've talked about here on the show before, is that when you pass a continuing resolution, it automatically increases spending in government by 8% annually. So whatever your budget was last year for the Department of Defense, whatever, is now up 8% more. And this is why our spending keeps growing and our debt keeps growing because we just pass these continuing resolutions. And we have these big, you know, these big fake fights. You know, it's like Big Brother in in Washington. And you know, everybody throws a fit, bro. It's like, oh, we're going to hold the guy. I can't tell you. Uh, Brent will tell you. We used to, when we were doing political talk here, um, we used to interview all the congressmen. And they would, and the, the head of the Financial Services Committee and the head of this committee and the head of that committee. And we'd interview them and say, okay, here we go. We're, we're up there. It's like, well, we're going to hold them to till we see the whites of their eyes. This is our Alamo moment. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. Right. And then they all cave and they pass the continued resolution with no restrictions. And you know, we increase the debt, increase the deficits. And we're going to get them next time is always the excuse. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's a bunch of theater, right? It's a bunch of kabuki theater. Because it's all good for them, right? The, the, the more money they spend, the more they, 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 they do, right? So everybody wants to spend money in Washington. Nobody wants to actually save money. Anyway. So here we are once again as we now approach another government shutdown. And this has been a more regular occurrence since President Obama was in office than we've had at pretty much any other time in history. And of course, the media jumps all over this because this is going to be a catastrophe, I tell you, just a catastrophe of this government shutdown. Let's talk about what a government shutdown includes for a moment. What the media you're going to hear on the media is like, oh, my gosh, if we don't pass this spending bill, right? And this is the same thing with the debt ceiling. And we had this conversation about the debt ceiling earlier this year. The media's out. It's like, oh, my gosh, we're going to default on our debt. Social Security checks aren't going to get paid. And, you know, it's, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be catastrophic for the economy. If we don't raise this debt ceiling, if we don't issue more debt, it's going to be absolutely a disaster. And as we told you then, first of all, mandatory spending always gets paid, period, regardless. If they have to take money, well, Department of Defense, I'm sorry, you lose money. Parks and Recreation, you lose money. But money is going to be made available to ensure that Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, prescription drug benefits, veteran benefits, and interest on the debt are paid. There is no risk of default in government because we can print money. 
Now, that's not a great thing, mind you, that we can print money, but we can't. And so there's no risk of default, despite what all the headlines tell you. Oh, we're going to default on our debt. No, we're not. Same thing with government shutdowns. You're going to hear media headlines is that, oh, my gosh, if we shut down the government, that means Social Security recipients aren't going to get their money and we're not going to be able to pay the interest on the debt, whatever it is. And that is completely horsepucky because mandatory spending gets paid, period. So what does happen during a government shutdown? And you'll remember this during the Obama administration, we shut down the government and everybody was having a fit over this government shutdown because we closed the national parks. And we furloughed 950,000 non-essential workers who got to go home and do nothing and then get all their money back when they come back to work. Now, first of all, as we talked about before, if you're classified as a non-essential worker, I think that's the first level of budget cuts we need to be thinking about. Yes, I know it's a tragedy if we close down national parks because, well, we can't go see the geyser at Yellowstone. But it's not the end of the world. So we get into these issues about government shutdowns, and this is going to be terrible, and it's going to be you know this or that. But maybe, just maybe, this is the point in time to where we should start thinking about how much money we spend, where we're spending it, how we're spending it. You know, let me just read to you here from the uh, Reuters this morning. U.S. House of Representatives returns this week for an expected political brawl over spending cuts and impeachment that could paralyze the Republican-controlled chamber as Congress struggles to avoid a government shutdown. The main bone of contention among House Republicans is a demand by roughly three dozen members of the hardline House Freedom Caucus to cut spending. Imagine that. For fiscal 2024 to just $1.47 trillion. That's a whopping $120 billion less than what the Biden and McCarthy agreement was back in May when they raised the debt ceiling. A whole $120 billion. We're still spending one point, just round it, $1.5 trillion a year in government. And that's not ever enough, right? We continue to run out of money. They, 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 you know, they say, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this spending bill, this continuing resolution, and we're going to run it till next year. And you know, we're spending four, four and a half, five trillion dollars a year in government. That's our federal expenditure run right now. So at some point, a little bit of fiscal sanity, even if we can just trim by $120 billion, isn't a lot. I mean, that's, you know, if you're talking about, you know, putting out a bonfire, we're just trying to do it by throwing driplets of water on it, right? I mean, it's just $120 billion against $5 trillion just isn't a whole lot of cut. And if you can't cut $120 billion somewhere, I think maybe that's the beginning of the problem. So we'll see what happens. But again, this is going to resolve. And, and here, here the, the end of the story of this 
is, is always the same. They'll pass a continuing resolution. It'll kick the can down the road until sometime early next year where we'll be up against this again. And that'll be about the time that we hit the debt ceiling again. And, you know, we'll just keep going through this. And it's, and it's all a facade. It's a sham. And the, 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 the issue is that it's not government that suffers with this. It's the average everyday American who has to pay the taxes to pay the interest on the debt, to fund the Social Security. And they do that in an environment of slowing economic growth because of more debt. You know, it's interesting. I was watching some TikToks yesterday that were getting sent to me, and one of them was of it was a collage of young millennials complaining. Sorry, not millennials, Gen Z. Young Gen Zers complaining about having to work nine to five every day and barely able to make ends meet when they get home. And there's no time to do anything else, right? I mean, they, they spend all day at work from nine to five. They get home, they're exhausted. Then they've got to cook dinner and clean their house and do all this. And, and there's just no time to do anything fun and they're barely making ends meet. And this is what the rest of their life looks like. Well, yeah. And part of that is a problem that starts with who you're voting for in Washington. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so kind of some good news this morning the u.s fifth let me start that over good morning welcome back to the show it's a real investment show it's early i've had near enough coffee The U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld an injunction restricting how the government can communicate with social media companies. This is good news, right? Um, You know, one of the the problems that we have, right, is a couple of things. You know, and whether you want to talk about whether it's COVID or climate change or whatever it is, right, you should be able to get access on the internet to all the information, right? The, the internet is supposed to be a repository of information that you have access to. And particularly since we rely on it so much now, since nobody actually cracks a book anymore or uses a set of encyclopedias <laughs> to research information, uh, we should probably have some rules kind of governing how information is classified, you know, on the internet. Now look, is there misinformation? Absolutely, there is misinformation out there. And there's also a lot of information that is true that may conflict with your personal point of view. That doesn't mean that it's misinformation, right? What you should have access to is all of the information so that you can 
research on your own and come to your own conclusion, you know, uh, about whatever the issue is. You know, to, uh, you know as, and as we've talked about, you know, many times, right, there's, there's a lot of things that go on in the world that you may agree with or may not agree with. And the one thing that we suffer from personally, and whether it's me or Brent or anybody else, is that we all suffer from confirmation bias. We want to believe that whatever we believe in is the right view. And so we'll disregard information that may conflict with that point of view. But we should consider that opposing view and give it due credit and then do that research and say, okay, maybe my thesis on ABC is wrong, right? Okay, so uh, a good example, right? So back in, you know, 2020, everybody said, you know, you have to wear a mask because masks combat the COVID vaccine. We now know tons of research that that's not true, right? But back then, if you happened to print anything that disagreed with that, it was suppressed by the mainstream media. It wasn't reported on. You couldn't find it on the Internet, right? So the Google algorithm suppressed it. And this was because the government was colluding with these major companies to suppress information that went against what the government was pushing at that point in time. And, and look, I, you know, whatever the reasons you want to throw out there are, it's like well, the government was doing it in our best, you know, in our, in, and defending us and taking care of us. If you believe that, great. That's, that's irrelevant. You should have had the opportunity to do this. Ivermectin, right? Remember the whole Ivermectin thing? Well, now they've come out and said, well, okay, yeah, it kind of does help, right? So the point is, is that we need all the facts, Right. And we need all the lies too, right? We need we need all the lies, we need all the facts, we need everything out there unsuppressed, so that we can do our own research and come to our own conclusions. And that makes us all better. Right. And it would also lead to us being able to have a dialogue about things. You know, Brent may have a view on Climate change. And let's just, you know, this has been a big one lately. So Brent says, absolutely, there's climate change. And we all need to go to electric vehicles to save the climate. Okay. That's fine. If that's what Brent wants to believe, then that's his view. So Brent should be able to go online and find the research to support his claims that CO2 emissions are harming the planet. But he should also be able to go online and find evidence that counter-opposes that claim. So he can at least evaluate whether or not he's right or his views are right. right? And that's the whole point of the Internet. That's the whole point of having this massive repository of data. You know, we, we've talked about before, if, if Albert Einstein ever had to come back from death <laughs> and he said... What is the most amazing invention since my passing? We would have to all say it's this little thing that we carry around in our hands and it has all the world's information on it. Throughout history, if it was ever out there, it's in this little device we call a phone. And we are all dumber for it. <laughs> oh, Because all we do with our phone is sit around and tweet mean things at people we don't even know, right? And watch people dance in bikinis on TikTok. 
You know, we should all be the smartest generation on the planet, period, end of story, because we should just be absorbing massive amounts of knowledge every single day from this little device on our phones, considering how much time we spend on our devices every day. And we don't. We should all be learning math and science and history, learning new languages and, uh, you know, and, and bettering ourselves. And we don't. All we do is use it to belittle other people, right? And to shout down other people whose views may not agree with our own, even though we may be wrong. The Global Climate Intelligence Group has a letter out today signed by 1,609 signatories, scientists all around the world. There is no climate emergency. Now, you won't find this anywhere. You've got to dig through the bowels of the Internet to try to find this because the algorithms at Google suppress it because it doesn't agree with a mainstream view of climate change and the massive money hole that's being dug to combat climate change. It's climate change, the, the fight about climate change is about money at the end of the day. And there are companies becoming massively wealthy off fighting this idea of climate change. We just passed $1.7 trillion of taxpayer-funded spending to fund the fight for climate change. Look, I'm not opposed to it. I'm not for it, whatever else. But I'm just saying we're, there is a large lobby group that is pushing climate change in order to get rich. Follow the money. Also, some of you may be too young to remember that climate change used to be called global warming. And we didn't have global warming for years. And so they had to change it to climate change in order to get traction. And the climate changes all the time, right? So that's why climate change works. But according to this document signed by 1,609 renowned scientists, natural as well as anthropogenic factors are causing temporary warming. The last ice, mini ice age was in 1850. So since you had an ice age back, a mini ice age back in 1850, a, a cycle of warming is completely normal. Warming is far slower than, and these are just the headlines of the, of the letter. Warming is far slower than predicted. Climate policy relies on inadequate models. CO2 is plant food. The basis of all life on the planet. If you extinguish CO2, you eradicate the population. Global warming has not increased natural disasters. There's no, and this is, this is, that's, there's plenty of statistical evidence for that. Climate policy must respect scientific and economic realities. So again, you won't find this on the internet because it's suppressed by the Google algorithms, but you should have access to it, whether you agree with it or not. Right now, if you're shaking your head, go, I, I can't believe he's saying that. It's not me. This is just the letter. But the point is, is you should have access to this letter and the data to make your own assumptions. There should be a repository as an example of all the climate readings, all the climate data. There should be a repository that is open to the public of all the raw data that you can go download back from the 1800s and run your own models. 
That's how we do it with economic data here in, in our office. When we're, when, and this is why if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, we constantly write articles every day. Newsletters, blogs, daily market commentary. And we have a ton of charts that we produce. We take the raw economic data, we break it down, we analyze it, we report on it for what it is. It may not agree with the mainstream narrative, but it's what the data says. And that's what you should have access to. So this ruling uh, you know, by the, by the Fifth Circuit Court is a good ruling, right? The government should not be colluding with these media companies to suppress information, to hide information, to you know, keep information from being public, to label things as false and misleading just because it disagrees with whatever their narrative is. I don't care whether it's Republican, Democrat, or Independent, or whoever, right? The government should not be involved in suppressing information. That information should be readily available to you in all of its forms, good, bad, or indifferent. And you should be getting smarter <laughs> by doing the work to analyze the data rather than just taking somebody's word for it. Do the research. Do the work. Whether or not you agree with me or anybody else is irrelevant. But don't you want to know for yourself whether your view is right or not? That's, we sh that's what I'm saying. We should have access to that information. All right. Come back, wrap up show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. get ready to kind of wrap up today the uh futures pointing uh just a little bit lower yesterday of course you know markets kind of rallied um a bit yesterday kind of had a sloppy start in the morning and then rallied into the afternoon uh, again kind of kind of the same story different day it's mostly the mega cap seven amazon tesla leading the way yesterday for the most part microsoft doing okay um you know, so again, a little bit of a pullback, a little bit of sloppiness isn't real surprising here. Again, we're still in the month of September. We're still kind of going through, you know, kind of different things here and there. Um, one of the big kind of uh, interesting kind of viewpoints yesterday was uh, Raytheon Technologies. It was down about 6% on a recall. And it's been down um, over the last you know, a few trading sessions, kind of in anticipation of this recall and then ultimately this recall. You know, but again, if you go back and take a look at Boeing as a good example of what happens to stocks, you know, when these things happen, remember the whole 737 MAX issue with Boeing? 
everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is going to put Boeing out of business. They're going to have to pay all these fines and settlements and all this. So, and, and once you start to, you know, get into this and looking at, you know, kind of the fundamentals of things, you know, there was certainly a, a tremendous amount of pressure on Boeing at the time because of what was going with the whole 737 MAX debacle. And, but once you start to evaluate what the impact of that's going to be on the company long term, then you can kind of start seeing, you know, where the future's headed. British Petroleum was another good example of this. Um, back in 2008, it's been a long time, the Macondo well blew up. Uh, um, Deep Horizon, Mark Wahlberg made a movie about it. If you haven't seen it, it's actually a pretty good movie. Um, but the Macondo well blew up and basically BP was going to hit, be hit with $40 billion in damages. And, and of course, we were, and we were watching the stock at the time getting completely pummeled. Everybody's like, oh my, this is going to put BP out of business. And, and we're like, no, it's not. This is one quarter of revenue for the company. And the bonds were trading at about 75, 80 cents on the dollar at the time. And so we started buying their bonds, expecting a recovery. And of course, within a year, those bonds were trading back at par again for the most part because the company wasn't going out of business. So Raytheon Technologies yesterday down, you know, pretty sharply on news about this recall. Um, and it'll probably be down a little bit more today because people got home from work yesterday. I was like, oh my gosh, right? I got to sell it. So there's going to be some early selling pressure in the stock this morning. Um, RTX said they're going to take a $3 billion charge as it recalls more than 600 Pratt & Whitney engines. Okay. They're going to take a $3 billion charge. Now, that's not insignificant, mind you. $3 billion is $3 billion. That's going to hurt. So as, as, as my dad used to say, well, that'll leave a mark. Um, but this is a company that generates sales of $70 billion a year. So if I take $70 billion, take out three, right? I'm still at $67 billion of sales. My income on $70 billion in sales last year was $5.56 billion. So if I take $3 billion in sales and I just throw that out the window, right? I'm just going to chunk it out the window. Or even if I took just $3 billion right off my income, I'm still generating $2.5 billion of income on a stock that trades at a 13 times forward PE. So, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on the stock currently, but these are those opportunities where it pays to be a contrarian. And look, I'm not, re I'm not making a recommendation. I'm not telling you to go out and buy the stock. I'm not saying any of that. What, what I'm saying for is, is you know, when you see these headlines, and I just thought this was interesting yesterday because lots of uh, very negative headlines you know, out about the stock because of what's happening with these engines. But this is a one-time situation. They, they call them back. They take the hit. They fix the problem. And they send it out. I mean, how many times in life have you heard about recalls from Toyota and Volkswagen and, and Chevy? And, yeah, these are a lot bigger issues. <laughs> Right, engines are much more expensive than a car, 
But it's the same thing. You, you do the recall, you fix the problem, and you move on with life, right? People aren't going to stop buying Pratt & Whitney, Whitney engines because of this. It's just a recall. So again, there's times in the market that the market gives you at least a reasonable opportunity to go look at something that is getting beaten down on a short-term issue that once they get fixed and resolved may provide a longer-term opportunity. Especially in this market, you don't get a lot of those in general. So I just thought that was an interesting kind of point because you know, we talk a lot about investing here on the show, but... We don't ever really kind of talk about specific issues as much. And, you know, and again, I am not telling you to go out and buy Raytheon technology. I'm just using that as an example because we saw this with Boeing as well back in 2020. Remember Boeing, you know, the whole 737 MAX issue and the shutdown and, and everything else. And nobody's going to be flying, so nobody's going to need a, need a Boeing airplane. And the stock got down to $130 a share back in 2020. And... <clears throat> Sorry, got down to $120 a share back in, in 2020. And it's currently trading around 211 So, you know, again, sometimes bad news can be opportunistic, depending on what the news is. Now, if the news was... Pratt and, Pratt and Whitney engines and Raytheon Technologies, nobody ever wants to buy their stuff again. That's a different story, right? You know, if something happens that completely devastates their business model, then different story. Probably don't want to own that company anymore. You know, Peloton, good example of that, right? It's, it's a bicycle company. It's, it's, they, they make exercise bikes, right? The inevitable decline in Peloton was always coming from its valuation. There was just, you know, they were valued at a point that everybody in the whole planet would have a Peloton bike in their house. And that just was never going to be the case. 90, I, would, I, I don't have the specific statistics, but I'd be willing to bet you that of all the exercise bikes ever sold to homes, more than 90% of them are coat racks. Just because of how human nature is. So again, not a good business model. Business models where there is a very low barrier to entry, like Zoom, as an example. Zoom's a great company, right? Everybody uses Zooms for meetings, but there's no barrier to entry. Anybody can throw up a website and have online video meetings, right? No barrier to entry. It's really freaking difficult to <laughs> build jet engines. <clears throat> it's also really expensive to start building jet engines. And that whole industry is pretty much locked up. There is a very wide moat to that business model. So even if I don't like Pratt & Whitney engines, I don't have a tremendous amount of choices to go buy engines. And, and these are good engines. So there's nothing wrong with the engines. They're just having a recall on an issue and it'll be over with. So again, you know, these are the things as you're thinking about investing and where you invest. You know, these are potentially opportunities. Again, you know, if you want to go look at it, do your own research, do your own research. I'm not making recommendations. I'm what I'm trying to again, I'm just I can't hammer that home enough for SEC reasons.
<clears throat> but, you know, it is important to look at these opportunities and say, hey, is there an opportunity here? Maybe not just yet. This, the, and again, you know, this the, the news just hit yesterday. You're going to have to have some more washout here over the next few days. And so the stock will probably be down a little bit more today, maybe down the rest of this week. You know, it, it could drift lower from here for a bit. But this is one of those things that you just kind of put up on a watch list and just start saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to kind of watch this thing. If it starts to base here and turn up and, and starts to improve in performance, might be worth a look. Might be worth a look. But that's the investing part, right? So anyway, uh, like I said this morning, uh, you know, futures are going to be lower across the board. Uh, S&P is down about 13 points right now. Dow's down about 80. Uh, NASDAQ's down about 50 points. Weakness really kind of in Oracle uh, this morning. They reported um, earnings yesterday that weren't as stellar as expected. And the stock, now there's a stock that's pretty overvalued relative to its, its underlying valuation. Stock's going to be down about 10% this morning. But again, that takes it all the way back to where it was mid-August. <laughs> you know, it ran up right into the earnings announcement and then just gave up everything that it had since really the last three weeks. And that's all that's happened here. But the stock is very overvalued where it is. Currently trades at um, a very high multiple. Price of sales is six times um, right now. And so, again, it's going to be down a little bit this morning after kind of a disappointing outlook for their shares. All right, that wraps up the show for the day. Be back tomorrow, of course, Wednesday with Danny Ratliff. Uh, we'll get into a bunch of topics then. Be sure to get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest newsletter. Our blog post um, is out this morning um, as well. And also, uh, don't forget our daily market commentary as well as please subscribe to this channel and click that little bell icon. We would certainly appreciate it. Have a great day. See you next time.